I love these Sundays when we get to receive new covenant partners and when we get to celebrate the sacraments together, like the sacrament of baptism that we'll be doing at our 1045 service. These are some of my favorite moments um, as being your pastor here at Glenkirk. And I want to uh, thank our Congregational Life Ministry team who are serving breakfast burritos in between services, free to everyone, um, just as a way of encouraging everybody to stay and to stick around, introduce yourself to some of our new members, get to know each other, introduce yourself to someone you don't know. We're in a series called Living by Faith. And how appropriate today that we're talking about being a community of faith. To live by faith, we need a community of faith. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The book of Hebrews was written to people who were tempted to give up on their community of faith. Some were tempted to give up because they were discouraged in their faith. Others were tempted because they were suffering for their faith. And still others had come to believe that they didn't need a community of faith. But if we want to persevere in this long-distance race of faith, we need a community of faith to walk with us. And today in Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to see six characteristics of a community of faith. And we're going to see that love is a common theme among all six of these characteristics that we're going to look at today. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll jump down to verse 17. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. And then skipping down to verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. 
Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit for you. You can be seated. Let's consider these six characteristics of a community of faith. And from verse 1, we see that a community of faith loves each other like a family. Loves each other like a family. Loves each other as brothers and sisters. And notice verse 1 says to keep on loving each other. The reformer John Calvin once said that nothing evaporates in a church faster than love. It just evaporates. We can't rely on yesterday's love for each other to make us a community of faith today or tomorrow. In a community of faith, each day calls for new expressions of love. And a community that doesn't keep on loving each other will eventually become a community of unfaith. A community where faith shrivels instead of flourishes among its people. So we keep on loving each other by forgiving each other and supporting each other, encouraging and lifting each other up. Because if we don't, our faith weakens in this race of faith. But when we love each other, we persevere in faith. A community of faith also opens itself up to new people. It opens itself up to new people. If verse 1 calls us to love the people we know as family, verse 2 calls us to love the people we don't know. The Greek word translated hospitality in verse 2 is the Greek word philozenia, which literally means love for strangers. The word philozenia originally referred to love for foreigners or immigrants that would move into a new community. And over time, this word, philozenia, came to include love for anyone that we don't know personally, who's a stranger to us. Maybe you've heard the word xenophobia. It's a fear of foreigners or strangers. Philozenia is the opposite of xenophobia. We, we could often define hospitality as entertaining our friends and family. And don't get me wrong, that's a great thing to do. I love having friends over our house and enjoying a meal together. But that's not philozenia, biblical hospitality. Philozenia is showing that same kind of love that we show to our friends and family towards people who are strangers to us, people that we don't know. To make his point, verse 2 reminds us of a story from the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 18, three out-of-town strangers came through the place where Abraham and Sarah happened to be living. And because Abraham and Sarah lived their lives by faith, and because they had a community of faith, they insisted on welcoming these three strangers into their home and showing them love and care. Well, it turned out these three strangers were not men at all. They were angels sent by God. And while Abraham and Sarah cared for these three strangers, God revealed through these strangers that Abraham and Sarah would have their son Isaac within a year. Imagine if they'd let these strangers pass through because they were afraid of them or because they were strangers and they didn't know them. 
They would have missed out on receiving the promise that God had for them. Philozenia won out over xenophobia because Abraham and Sarah were living by faith. In fact, centuries later, Jesus would say in Matthew 25 that when we welcome strangers, when we show biblical hospitality, philozenia, we are actually welcoming Jesus. Here at Glenkirk, being a community of faith means opening ourselves up to new people like these new covenant partners, people who started out as strangers to the Glenkirk community, but now they're part of our family. Today also marks the launch of La Casa Church. La Casa is our Spanish-speaking church plant, and they'll be meeting here at Glenkirk on Sunday mornings at 10.30 each Sunday. Philozenia, biblical hospitality, means welcoming those who attend La Casa Church with love and affection as if we're welcoming Jesus himself. Who knows? Maybe there's angels among them as well. The start of La Casa is an opportunity for us to grow in biblical hospitality. Community of faith welcomes people. It opens itself up to people. A community of unfaith closes itself to new people. It lives in suspicion of strangers. I have a friend who went to a small college in Alberta, Canada. His name was Lee, and because Lee didn't have a car while he was there, he walked to a church that was within walking distance of his dorm. He attended that church for four years through college and two years of grad school, and they always viewed him as an outsider because he was American and not Canadian. They kept him at a distance. He never felt fully welcomed or at home over six years. Because that church community had become a community of unfaith, a community where faith shrivels instead of thrives. And to no one's surprise, that church eventually closed its doors. A community of faith opens itself to new people, and as it does, faith flourishes. Third, a community of faith cares for the marginalized cares for those on the margins. In verse 3, Hebrews encourages these Hebrew Christians to remember two marginalized groups. The first groups are those who are in prison. And these were probably members of their congregation who had been locked up for their faith in Jesus. God's people have sometimes faced imprisonment for their faith, from Joseph in the book of Genesis to Paul in the book of Acts. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said that when we care for people in prison, we are caring for Jesus himself as we do. And over time, as Christians read Hebrews 13.3, they began applying it not only to Christians in prison for their faith, but to anyone who's been incarcerated, which led to the emergence of prison ministries. The other group we're urged to remember are the mistreated. The word he uses here means to be treated harshly, to be treated unjustly. And Hebrews doesn't really tell us who these people were or how they were being treated unjustly. Maybe they were targets of abuse or hatred or discrimination. But in both cases, in verse 3, calls us to have empathy for these people as if we ourselves 
are in prison or as if we ourselves were being mistreated because empathy is what leads us to care for people without the capacity to put ourselves in another person's shoes, our hearts will grow hardened and uncaring. But we, we can imagine ourselves in another person's situation when we allow ourselves to enter into their suffering, to, to listen to their story. That leads us to care. I, I used to lead a weekly Bible study in the high security unit at West End Juvenile Detention Center in Ontario. It's now closed down, but I, I led that Bible study for quite some time. And before I started leading that Bible study, I had been a police chaplain for 12 years. And so I went into that ministry in the detention center pretty cynical about the people who were there. Some of the kids in that unit had done horrible things. But as I listened to their stories, it began to create empathy in me that broke through my cynicism and my guarded heart and led me to care for them. Some of those kids were just in the wrong place at the wrong time or the product of really messed up families or growing up in poverty. And the more my heart softened and I began to care, the more they began to grow in their faith during that Bible study. A community of faith cares about those on the margins. Fourth, the community of faith honors marriage. It honors marriage. The, the command to honor marriage in verse four, it may seem like it's a little bit from left field, but remember, love is the common theme in these verses here. Love for each other as brothers and sisters in our church family in verse one. Love for strangers in verse two. Love for the marginalized in verse three. And now love between husbands and wives in verse four. See, in Christian marriage, two people choose to run the race of faith together, side by side. Back when Hebrews was written, marriage was being devalued in a couple of different ways. Some people simply looked down on marriage and on married people. In fact, there was a very influential Jewish group back when Hebrews was written that actually discouraged people from getting married. They believed that marriage was an obstacle to faith. And over time, this same idea would grow into a requirement that some churches still have today that doesn't allow pastors or leaders to get married. So to those who would devalue marriage, Hebrews commands us to honor marriage. The other way marriage was being devalued is by spouses who didn't take it seriously. Spouses who weren't faithful to each other, which is why Hebrews says to keep the marriage bed pure, that the marriage covenant needs to be protected. A community of faith will value marriage, not because married people are better than unmarried people. In a healthy church, we'll have a healthy balance of both. I love the fact that on our session, we have both married and unmarried elders. But living by faith as a married couple presents its own unique challenges. And married people need a community of faith to help them, to cheer them on and encourage them. A community of faith values marriage, and as it does, faith flourishes. Fifth, we see in verse 5 that a community of faith cultivates contentment. It cultivates contentment. 
loving money and loving things often gets in the way of loving people. And again, love is the underlying theme. We keep ourselves free from the love of money or the love of material things so we can love people as we learn to practice contentment. Contentment is being satisfied with what we have rather than obsessively grasping at what we don't have. Verse 5 reminds us of God's promise to never leave us, to never forsake us, that he is always going to be there to provide for us. A community of unfaith is discontent. And so it focuses on what it doesn't have. A community of unfaith grasps at resources and hoards them because it's afraid of losing those resources. A community of faith says, I am my own helper because I am constantly afraid of what mortals may do to me. But a community of faith says the words of the psalm, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Contentment causes faith to flourish. But loving possessions and loving money causes faith to shrivel. Finally, six, a community of faith follows spiritual leadership. Follows spiritual leadership. And again, the theme here is love. Love between people of faith and the spiritual leaders God raises up to lead them. Now, in the New Testament, these leaders are often called elders. And there there are two kinds of elders mentioned in the New Testament. Elders who lead primarily by giving direction and elders who lead primarily by teaching God's word. Here at Glenkirk, we call the first group elders and the second group pastors, but really they're all elders. And verse 7 seems to be thinking especially of our pastors because it specifies the leaders who speak the word of God to us. And we're invited to remember our past spiritual leaders who spoke the word of God into our lives and who finished well, to emulate their example, to consider the outcome of their way of life. And even though we may be led by various pastors and elders throughout our lifetime, throughout our race of faith, verse 8 reminds us that Jesus is constant. He is unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He died for us in the past. He is our advocate in the present, and he will come again for us in the future. Our leaders, pastors, and elders may change over a lifetime, but the chief shepherd remains the same. He's constant. But then in verse 17, the author addresses our relationship to our current leaders. How do people love their spiritual leaders, and how do their leaders love the people? Verse 17 gives us two ways people love their leaders, by having confidence in them. The word that's used here means to trust, to trust our leaders. Now, spiritual leaders certainly aren't perfect. They make mistakes, they sin. But our leaders, unless they have major character defects or unless they're false teachers or wolves in sheep's clothing, we love them by trusting them. Everyone needs spiritual leaders in their lives who they trust. I have pastors and elders who I trust from our network of churches in ECO who speak into my life. 
I also meet with a small group of pastors who I trust for encouragement and mutual accountability. I have a retired pastor who I used to work for, who's a mentor to me who I trust, and a spiritual director I meet with um, every other month because I need spiritual leadership in my life. But spiritual leaders can't lead us without our trust. We also love our spiritual leaders by submitting to their spiritual authority in our lives. Now, submission is not a very popular word these days. The word that's used in verse 17 simply means to yield ourselves. Pastors and elders are entrusted by God with the spiritual authority to lead their congregations. We may not agree with every decision they make. We may not like every decision they make. They may not agree with every decision they've made in the past in retrospect, but the command here is to yield when they make those decisions if they're operating within their area of responsibility and authority. And of course, not every decision will be perfect. I love the the words that we use, especially the verbs. Whenever here at Glenkirk, we ordain or install a new pastor to accept them to pray for them, to encourage them, to respect their decisions, to follow their leadership, to pay them fairly, to provide for them, to listen to the word of God as they teach it, to welcome their care into our lives and to honor their spiritual authority. See, verse 17 is reminding us that a healthy relationship between spiritual leaders and the people they lead is in everyone's best interest. We love our leaders by trusting and yielding to their leadership. And our leaders watch us by watching over the community because they will someday give an account to God. There will be a day of reckoning for every spiritual leader for how they've led. When spiritual leaders try to lead people who don't trust them, their work becomes a burden, a source of pain. Love between leaders and those they lead breaks down. But when spiritual leaders lead people who trust them, leadership is a source of joy. And that's in everyone's best interest. Now, I am very aware of the fact that for me, one of your pastors to talk about this can sound very self-serving today. And yet it's in the text. I feel like it would be malpractice to just ignore it. So please forgive me if I sound self-serving. But being a pastor is hard these days. Uh, Maybe you heard about the Barna study that was done in 2021 that found that 38% of pastors in America are actively considering leaving pastoral ministry to do something entirely different. That was up 9% from the year before. Just over the past 12 months, 13 of my pastor friends have retired early or left pastoral ministry. I've never had this many friends discouraged, burned out, and leaving ministry. And please hear me. I'm not in that category. I'm, I'm feeling good right now. I'm grateful for Glenkirk. I'm grateful for this congregation, and I am hope to be here for a long time. But spiritual leadership for pastors and for elders is challenging right now. And we all need spiritual leaders in our lives for us to flourish. Faith flourishes in that kind of community. To live by faith, we need a community of faith. 
And a community of faith is a community of love. Loving each other as brothers and sisters in a family. Loving strangers with that same love. Loving the marginalized. Husbands and wives loving each other. Keeping our lives free from the love of money so we can build contentment. And leaders loving one another. You see, love is the defining characteristic of a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship in the Bible is a relationship based on mutual promises, trust, and love. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Being a member of a church family is a covenant relationship. Being the pastor at a congregation is a covenant relationship. And in a covenant relationship, if one side fails or is imperfect, the other side still is committed to living out its love because they're bound together by a common love and vice versa. Without covenant love, these relationships become transactional relationships. A transactional relationship is like a business contract where I get what I want and give as little as possible. In marriage, marriage vows are a covenant. A prenup is transactional. In a transactional relationship, if I feel like you're not keeping up your end of the bargain, I feel absolved to renege on my end of the bargain. But a community of faith is different because a community of faith is a covenant community. A community of unfaith is a transactional community. Faith flourishes in a community of faith. Faith falters in a community of unfaith. About 15 years ago, I went through a major crisis in my faith. I've told you about it before. I just left my first church after 15 years as the lead pastor, I was going through a painful divorce, and I wasn't sure what I believed anymore. I was wounded, I was broken, I was bitter, I was cynical. And add to the fact that six of my closest ministry friends had walked away from their faith during that season. Two pastors, a worship leader, an elder, and two spouses of elders. And it was difficult and painful to watch. And I remember constantly asking myself, why do I still believe this stuff when these six close ministry friends have walked away from their faith? Even with my doubts and cynicism, I still believed. And, and the conclusion I came to, at least one of them, is that I was still part of a community of faith. Even amid my doubts and my cynicism and my brokenness, I persisted in a community of faith. Because we need a community of faith if we're going to live by faith. So to our new covenant partners today, I'm so glad that you're part of Glenkirk, and I pray that we would be that kind of community for you. And to the children that we baptize today and to their families, I pray that we are faithful in fulfilling our covenant promises to be a community of faith for them. Let us not give up meeting together as a community of faith, as some are in the habit of doing, but let's love and encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these challenging words, Lord. 
that are really not hard to understand, but hard for us to live sometimes. Father, thank you for Glenkirk, that we get to celebrate receiving new members and celebrate the sacrament of baptism, and yet we are reminded once again that it is not about us, Lord, that it is about you. Father, help us continue to grow in being a community of faith, a community of covenant love. Father, we pray for La Casa as they start today that you would pour out your blessings on this congregation that is emerging and planting. And thank you, God, that we get to be a part of this new birth. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.